Hello, everyone, and welcome to Three Speech, the entertainment podcast that also follows the rule of three. It's two friends, three topics, and unlimited entertainment. I'm your host, Jamie. And I'm your host, Alyn. And on today's show, kind of similar to last week, we've got a throwback because Alyn finally made it to the theater. After... Finally! Is this your first time in the theater in like three years? No, I, I made the mistake of going to see House of Gucci. Okay, um, we, we'll, we won't count that one. This yeah. is Alyn's first time in the theater <laughs> in about three years, and she saw Spider-Man No Way Home. Woo! And uh, beyond that, we've got another sort of um, big-budget title that uh, was actually a really fun watch. We're going to do Ghostbusters Afterlife, and then it kind of goes downhill from there. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> don't don't show all of our cards at the beginning. <laughs> leave them leave them like guessing. But we're we're going to say some things that might be positive and or negative about the King's Man. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> Alin, how's things going for you? <laughs> things are going well. Mm. Um, I finally figured out what our newish theme song reminds me of. Oh yes, I I, I always go back to Music Box. That's what I was going to say, but I am imagining, like, a haunted music box. Ooh, haunted music box. Yes. Like, there's some to- story to be told. I don't yeah. know. I, yeah. I feel like, you know, it could be something. It could be one of the um, the Conjuring movies. Just throwing oh. ideas out there. Like a haunted music box. Like one of the good Conjuring movies. Yeah, like the earlier stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I mean, they're just going to continue to make them, but. um, Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, for better or worse. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay. Well, we've got some interesting little threes today. I'm actually kind of this, these are kind of different. Um, we uh we actually have a this I was thinking this could actually be a segment. Oh. Um, which I have labeled the Korean drama roundup. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it could be a segment. I feel like it should be like I forget what show it was on, but it's like Korean drama roundup. Korean drama roundup. I got nothing. <laughs> I, there was like something. There was something along the lines that that had that same sort of beat. It was like dun 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 dun. I don't know. Somebody listening is gonna know. Yeah, someone's gonna be like, I know that jingle from somewhere. Yeah. Okay. I trust okay. you. Okay. That's yeah. All right. So on today's Korean drama roundup, potentially a new segment. Um, we have uh uh, all of us are dead. Yes. Right. Yes. And uh, I'm going to do Hellbound. OK, so why don't you start? So All of Us Are Dead um, is something that continuously popped up on Netflix as something to watch. It was lodged in the top five for a long time. And from what I've heard, based on viewership, it has actually surpassed the Squid Game, Squid Games as the number one Korean show on Netflix. Huh. So let me start by saying that I did enjoy it. It is about a zombie outbreak and the center of it happens to be a high school. So you've got that very sort of um, it's almost like breakfast club type group together. Sure, the yeah. You know, the, the popular the popular girl, the girl who's class president that no one knows about. I mean, that no one really knows about because she's so um, 
she's so smart and she's kind of kept off to herself. Shy, you have quiet type. Yeah, you have two um, kids that grew up together. They're neighbors. Maybe they like each other. Maybe they don't. But it becomes this zombie apocalypse. And each episode that you're watching takes place in real time. So it takes place over the course of a few days. So you're wondering, are these individuals going to be saved? Is the outbreak going to be contained? And so this is just like normal high school. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay, sure. It's Keep going. Yeah, it's like it's like a normal high school. Right. Um this feels like my Friday. Yeah. Okay. It's it's like them when they're hungry. Right. When they're, you know, they're just running around rabid. Um we often describe the sixth and fifth graders at the school as feral. So ex- just picture that, but they're you know, they're ravenous for human flesh instead of their cell phones. This all still seems very normal. Okay, so. Yeah. Oh, and that's the other thing, because I'm sure, because I have not set foot in a high school in a long time, and you deal with this, do you take your students' phones away? (laughs) (laughs) So, I'm supposed to, but I don't want to touch their dirty, grimy little electronics. so they're, I tend to just yell at them about it and then email their parents. I read an article once that our phones are like dirtier than our toilets because I, I of, absolutely 100% believe that, which is pretty much the same reason why I won't take them from the kids. I don't want to touch those things. I respect it. Yeah. In Japan, however, you have to put your cell phone in a box that corresponds to where you're sitting oh. and your phone gets locked away. So so interesting. Is it like on the desk? Yes. So you like when you come into class, you take your cell phone out, you put your cell phone in and the teacher based on where you're sitting in your assigned seat can tell who hasn't handed in their phone yet. Wow. You know, what would be really cool is if we had that here. But there were also those. um, Is it like what is it? Is it like infrared lights that kill viruses and stuff? Yes. Yes. Like you, like the little box had infrared in it, and it, it could like sterilize your phone while it was in there. That would be nice, right? Oh, let's invent this. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so Podcast over. We're gonna it's go. Done. Go, we are we're we're moving on now. to something else. Yeah. We're moving on to something else. Yeah. But so it's that interesting concept where it's like, well, why don't they just call the police? Well, they none of them have access to their phones. Oh, so this is self-contained within the high school. Yes. So how so, come they can't just run out the door? Because most, so since this is the epicenter of the outbreak, they can't step outside of the classrooms because everyone in the school has become a zombie. And it's wait, all because. Wait, one, all of them? Most of them. Oh, now okay. I'm talking, I'm talking now. I'm not revealing anything, but it's one of the teachers who created the virus. Well, I mean, as if teachers don't have a bad reputation already. I mean, come on. Exactly. And the reason for the creation of the virus, I didn't buy it. I thought it was stupid. Um, But you do get an answer. Okay. About it. But what ends up happening is a, a mouse has the virus. A student gets bit by the mouse. And because it's that fast acting zombie spread, like. One bite, two seconds, 
you're done. So the kids in the school, it's not like they physically can't leave. They choose not to because they don't want to bring the virus outside the school. Is that the idea? Well, that and they physically cannot because then they show it. Now, it's a huge school. They show the the different attacks that occur like on the soccer fields where people are, wherever there are a lot of people concentrated, you see the zombie attacks and how, you know, when you're sitting there having lunch in the cafeteria and zombies run in from the soccer field, there's no way those 40 kids are going to get out of the cafeteria alive. Okay. So based on that, you do see other aspects of the show because you're introduced in 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 flashbacks to you know the the student's parents so you see what the student's parents are doing like one student's parent is a um an EMT and he's out there on the front lines and they're trying to figure out what this is and what's going on you have other um parents who are trying to get closer to the school even though the school has been shut down as like a containment zone oh i see so so this sounds a lot like quarantine to be honest with you it it is it has that sort of vibe to it mm-hmm. my biggest problem was it's 12 episodes that's a lot yeah each episode is a solid hour and it's a lot too it didn't need to be. They could have been just as effective showing the zombie outbreak and what was going on. Because at the end of every episode, you would get a little bit of information that moved the story forward. Uh-huh. And, and it just felt like it could have been faster paced. Fair enough. So that was, I mean. So ultimately, would you recommend it or or not? Like, would you say it's worth it in the end? I would recommend it, but it's something that you have to have patience for because it's not going to move as quickly as you would like. There is a lot of character development. There's a lot of uh, not necessarily world building, but backstory building for a lot Mm -hmm. of these children and you get to see things through the lens you would probably appreciate it because you know more about japanese culture than i do i also Um, have a really hard time watching things set in schools though because i'm just in the school like for most of my life and i just kind of want to escape it from my entertainment (laughs) right but there's like all these your sister's the same way right she doesn't yeah she is she doesn't like she doesn't like school stuff at all um but it, it's something that deals a lot with should – it's that, like, utilitarian concept. Should you kill this one person to prevent the spread of others? Oh, yeah, yeah. I you like know, those so, kinds of yeah. um, philosophical debates. It's, I mean, this it's is why I like Jupiter's Legacy. It was basically superhero philosophy. I'm the only it's, one who liked it, apparently. <laughs> but <laughs> You never know. They still own the rights to it. But I yeah. think, like, I wouldn't say it's not something that you can really binge because it's so slow. Yeah. Um, All right. Yeah. Take it in small doses. Okay. Okay. Um, So that's uh, All of Us Are Dead. Uh, I watched a show called Hellbound, um, which I will say I didn't really like. Um, It had a really, really high score. And there's a lot of people who did like it. The reasons why I didn't like it are not necessarily universally bad things. So some people might actually really enjoy this, but... So the basic premise or the basic setup of this is you see in like the first episodes, I'm really giving a lot away here, this guy get 
he like runs into a restaurant. It's like a public place. And he's all like nervous and sweating and freaking out. And then you realize that it's because there are these huge demonic looking beasts kind of coming after him. They're sort of humanoid form. They kind of remind me of like golem, like golems, like smoky looking. Oh, yeah. They're they're big old things, big, chunky things. And they they're very fast, though, and very agile. And they they basically come crashing through downtown I don't know if it was Seoul or whatever but like a real heavily populated area and they they make a lot of destruction and they basically find this guy grab him beat the ever-living crap out of him with a thousand witnesses and then all of this like light comes shooting out of their hands they burn his body to a crisp it's incredibly gruesome and he's left as this like charred skeleton and then this like almost like wavy looking portal appears and they just jump through it and they're gone. And like a million people got this on cell phone cameras. So the police send detectives to investigate this murder. And at that moment I was like, all in, I was like, yes, let's send real police to investigate this supernatural murder by these like weird smoke demons. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm honestly picturing in, I'm sure people will remember this, but remember it like in the first couple seasons of Supernatural? Yep. When exactly. the hellhounds yep. would come. Like that's what I'm imagining. You're not far off. It's okay. much more gruesome, but you're not far off. All right. So and and at that point, I was like super into this because I'm like, what are these demons? Where are they coming from? Why are they coming? And it essentially the explanation that you get very early on is some people are getting a decree. And this face will appear in midair and say, you know, Alin Butland, you are bound for hell in, and you get a time. Oh, okay. 10 days, 10 days at 3.02 PM, whatever. And this time seems to be completely random. Like there's one person who gets one that's 20 years. And there's one person who gets one that's 10 seconds. So there's no like, Set, you know, it could be days, it could be weeks, it could be years, it could be, yeah, it's happening now. Oh. There seems to be no escape from it. If you run, the monsters just appear wherever you are. And the explanation given is you're a sinner. God is sick of us and all of our BS and is now taking punishment into his own hands. And the demons are coming to collect these horrible, horrible people and bring them to hell. That sounds about right, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. here's the thing. None of that is actually really true, per se. Oh. And what the explanation ends up being, and I don't really know if I want to give it or not, but it's not good. It's not satisfying in any way, shape, or form. Um, and then it kind of, once that explanation comes out, and you get it in the first couple of episodes, okay. once that explanation comes out and you realize what's actually going on, the show does a time jump of like roughly five years and starts to focus on mostly new characters. And this is where I had a big issue is because I had a problem kind of, cause it's only six episodes long. So I had a problem like getting into it all over again with new people. Do you know what I mean? I, well, no, it sounds very ambitious. Cause I was about to ask you how many episodes is well, this? Yes. It's extremely ambitious for six episodes. And I mean, I don't think it needed to be any longer than that. It does its thing and it's done. Um, it doesn't really wrap anything up. Uh, it could easily have another season because there are no answers. But 
at the same time, I don't, I didn't really enjoy like the ride, you know, because if you're going to do something mm-hmm. like this and you're going to say, here's the thing that's happening, we're not going to answer any of your questions. You really need to make the ride special. And what I really noticed about the show was that it focused so much on the violence of these killings. Every single one that happened, you saw it in extreme gory detail. Women, children, old ladies. Um, it was very graphic. And I normally don't shy away from graphic violence, but this was, this was gratuitous to the point wow. where I was like, we get it. We've seen these monster beasts tear multiple people apart at this point. I'm I'm really okay with not seeing it again. Um, especially when they kept like pushing the envelope of the violence, you know. And so I wasn't really enjoying the ride, you know. Yeah. No, it's, it's also really heavily focused on religion because yeah. there's like a, a re- there's like a religious cult that kind of comes up and televises these things to pr- like basically to scare people into submission, you know, like this is how it's this is what's going to happen to you if you sin. We're going to televise this. But of course, you know, each one they televise gets five million viewers or whatever. You know, people want to watch other people get torn apart a la the Colosseum of Rome. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's like everybody's at fault here. There's no there's no like good redeeming stuff. Um, and maybe that's the other thing I didn't really like about it. There's really no wins. <laughs> there's, there's no <laughs> there is no happy endings here, people. Um, and you know, it's one of those things where it's like, say you are going to go through the trigger warnings on a show, right? It would be Mm -hmm. like violence to gratuitous violence, violence to women, violence to children, um, sexual violence, uh, you know, it's it's like on and on and on and on. Right. And it's like, it just, it it felt more like, uh, torture porn than good TV to me, you know? So I, I wasn't, yeah, I, 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 I had, I had a really hard time getting through it. Um, and, and like I said, I, I had such high hopes, excuse me, at the beginning, uh, cause of this detective whole thing. I was like, Ooh, detectives investigating supernatural murders. I love this. And then it was just like religious sect versus underground sect politics and religion. And I, I don't know. It just kind of got away from itself, I think by the end. Um, you know, so I, I can't really recommend it unless you're like, really into all that supernatural violence, I guess. There's also probably one of the most irritating characters I have ever seen in a show ever. <laughs> as if as if you didn't like it, you know, enough. I ended up end. fast forwarding through this. So basically one of the, like the religious cult has basically a, they have like a military, which is another separate cult that's known as the Arrowhead. And the Arrowhead, you know, whenever this religion kind of wants some violence done, they kind of incite the Arrowhead to do it. And the Arrowhead will go commit horrible acts of violence and then claim that they're doing it in God's name, you know, which is obviously commentary. But it's not subtle commentary. They, like, bash you over the head with the commentary, you know. Everything is violent about this show, even the commentary. So um, (laughs) the Arrowhead have this like streamer guy who's their representative who like gets online and streams stuff about what's going on with the Arrowhead. And he's literally the most irritating character you will ever see in your life, which is probably commentary on streamers, but also not good. (laughs) So I don't know. I wasn't a fan. I can't really recommend it. I would just say go back and watch Kingdom again. (laughs) <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, I know, um, you know, talking about sexual violence, I was talking because Outlander is coming back for, I don't know. I think oh, it's God, like the season. 50th season. Yeah. And one of, 
one of my I friends, had to bail on that show because of the I, sexual violence. That's what I said. One of my friends was like, I've heard good things. And like my first thing was I it was a very rough watch because I couldn't get through season one. Yeah, I'm not going to yeah. lie. I mean, I watched season one. I want to say I watched season two, but there was like a breaking point for me. And I can't remember which season it was. I mean, basically, one of the characters' daughters was was raped. And it's like, really? How is this moving the story forward? Yeah. Like, it's, yeah. it's like basically on the show, everyone's going to get raped. Like, it, it's like... I can't. I and can't the lead woman, that. it was like more than once. Oh yeah, it was absolutely more than once. Uh, and it's yeah. like, oh my god. And the lead, and the lead guy was oh, yeah. also. Yeah. I that mean, scene in the first season where he was whipped, I just couldn't. It's it's tough. It's tough to watch. I know it's based on books, so I know their source material, but I like to keep those sort of things separate. I don't find any. Uh, entertainment and anything that is resembling torture porn or sexual violence. That's where I, I draw my line, you know? Yeah, I also have an animal violence line, but... Yeah, yeah, that's... But at least you can look that up beforehand. DoesTheDogDie.com Let us plug yeah. it again, our favorite yeah. website. Hopefully someday there'll be a sponsor. It is DoesTheDogDie.com And I forget what movie I was watching. It was a couple of weeks ago with... Oh, this is a horrible movie. It is not a good movie. I am in no way recommending it, but it was 99 cents on Amazon. I've never even heard of it. Okay, so it's Don't Breathe 2. Oh, 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 I see, I see. Oh, yeah, so I thought you was, said the name of the movie was 99 cents, and I was like, no, oh, that's no, no. interesting. It was, it was, it was really not, downvaluing themselves. <laughs> it was like on sale on Amazon, and you know when see, you delay. I couldn't, I, I didn't like Don't Breathe 1 because of the sexual violence. Right, but I, for 99 cents, <laughs> it has nothing to do with the first one. Well, Lynn, that 99 cents could have gotten you like a lottery ticket, you know? It's true. It's Something true, of value. There was a dog. Oh, no. And, of course, we had to look it up. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. And, yeah. Th- immediately, we went to doesthedogdie.com. Our favorite but, sponsor, who's not our sponsor. Not our sponsor, but we would love if they were. Yeah. But One so more time, doesthedogdie.com. Yeah. But, no, you know, it, mm. it, would I say don't – for 99 cents, it was worth it. But, okay, uh, okay. It was only, like, an hour and 20 minutes. And you could play on your phone and have conversations with people <laughs> while you were had it in the background. High so, praise right uh, there. That, that is. I'm giving it a thumbs up for okay. a movie that you pay nothing for okay. and then don't pay attention to. Okay. Excellent. Good. All right. Well, let's move on to something happy. Law and Order. <laughs> so... <laughs> Law and Order is back. Now, I'm not going to lie. I haven't watched it, but I know you have. Oh, Jamie, if you just want to sit down and, like, have a a warm glass of milk with some cookies, that's what watching this show is. it as good as the original? Like, is it picking up where? It it is every. So there's only been three episodes so far. Um, You'll be. You'll love it because the theme song is exactly the same. Oh, my God. (laughs) The the opening. Yeah. And the opening credits are exactly the same as, like, the original ones from, like, 1990. It's the same sort of blue, red, solid pictures. I freaking love it. it, They are like, this is who we are. This is what we do. And we We don't apologize. Yeah. And we know why you're tuning in. And. 
each episode so far has been, you know, they're ripped from the headlines. They've been waiting years to do these. Um, the first one was a um, an interpretation of the the Bill Cosby uh, oh, trial. Okay. Uh, the second one, which is, it's a, it was a, basically it was a ripoff of. I mean, I say ripoff, I mean rip from the headlines. Elizabeth Holmes, who's okay. in the news for mm-hmm. for the and the most recent one on Thursday was an imagine an imagining of Gabby Petito, who was murdered by her boyfriend, and they were um they were living the quote van life, like they were driving around the country in a van. Living that man life. Yeah, it was very recent, but it is the same formula that you love. You know exactly what you're going to get. What about cast members? So I will admit, um, I know Anthony Anderson was one of the detectives on Law and Order towards the the later years of his run. Mm-hmm. I didn't see him as much. It's probably because I was so used to like Jerry Orbach, Chris Noth. Um, What's his name? Benjamin Bratt. Um, mm, those oh, are yes, like yeah. mm-hmm. those are like the years that I was super into it. Um, so I like Anthony Anderson. He's teamed up with a detective, and the name is escaping me. Not a huge fan. I feel like his name's Jeffrey something, but he's like one of these. So he's one of these police officers where you know, he doesn't like the Black Lives Matter protests and he doesn't think that there's a such things as police brutality, like things oh, like geez. that. Like he's like the old school detective. But you have uh, Cameron Mannheim fulfilling the role of, I mean, her name is not Lieutenant Van Buren, but she is basically Lieutenant Van Buren mm-hmm. taking over for Esapatha Murkerson. You have uh, Sam Waterston returning as Jack McCoy and he he's the best. Is- He's in charge. Oh, I love it's, it. So he has taken over the the role that Stephen Hill had in the old ones where you talk through the cases. Mm. Our buddy from uh, Hannibal, Hugh Dancy, is oh, funny. He is the idealistic prosecutor and he has a female prosecutor, too. I can't remember. Her is it name. Angie Harmon? No, it's not. But you know who they did bring back for one episode? Uh-huh. Carrie Lowell. Do you remember she played Jamie? I think her oh. name is Jamie on the show. I, um, ooh, I'll have to she look had, her up. She had short hair. Um, she was married to Richard Gere a million years ago. Okay. But she came back um, for an episode because she was, you know, I, I'm sure that there's going to be other ones, but you're, you are seeing like different ADAs come back as she played Jamie Ross. So Carrie Lowell, played uh, ADA Jamie Ross and you know now she's leading her own um you know how like the southern district of New York and all the dis- different districts she's running one of those so it's okay. it's you know you're seeing these faces it is like like I said it's a warm embrace it's okay. it's sitting down with a with a good friend and Now just, where are you watching it believe it or not it is on Hulu. Okay, I have Hulu, so I am all in. And we just kind of fired up the Hulu again the other day, and we were watching Drunk History, which is also a that lovely. Is, that is a oh, great man. show. Love Drunk History. We we were watching the one about Mary Shelley, and it is highly recommended. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I do want to say that the detective's okay. name, who I couldn't remember, was uh, his name is Jeffrey Donovan. Okay. And he's been in... Um, 
Burn Notice. Oh, yeah. I knew yeah. that name sounded familiar. Okay, so, I used to like love he, Burn Notice. He's one of those people, like, he's been in a bunch of things, always as kind of the second or third tier person. But Burn Notice was his, his yeah, big... Bruce Campbell was in that, too. Yeah, it's crazy. And Sometimes. I feel that... It's Odelia Halevi who plays the other ADA. I feel bad. I just want to make sure I put that out there. But because they're all the, listening. Yeah, they all are. And I wouldn't mm-hmm. want to, you know, upset, right. you know. We these. love you all equally. Yes. Don't be upset. Yes. But right. I'm telling you, Jamie, if you just need to like sit down and you're like, oh, I just want something that's going to have a conclusion that's going to serve up some straight up law and order justice. Just put it on. I will. You won't be, I'm di- going you won't be, to. You won't be disappointed. All right. All right. For our third little three, we're going to talk about something serious. Oh. Something awful. Oh, no. Movie surge pricing. Oh. Yep. Okay. So, for those of you who don't know, this is a thing, and I don't mm-hmm. think it's going away. The basic idea is because movie theaters suck, and they <laughs> are awful greedy little demons they have decided that it is totally fine for them to charge extra for you to go see movies that are either a very popular or b brand new god forbid your movie is both popular and brand new you're likely to hit a very high kind of like surcharge to go see a movie at the time and place you want to see it. Now, this has mostly been levied against AMC, but I don't think they're the only ones doing it. Um, And even though it happened for Spider-Man No Way Home, they did it very quietly then, Mm -hmm. and they didn't, like, make a big deal about it. However, for Batman, they did a very public reveal about all of this, you know, opening week surge pricing they they talked about it on an earnings call and so the 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 verbiage of it and the tone of it sort of made its way around in Hollywood and um Hollywood movie studios and you know obviously the general public are both not super happy about this in fact um one um executive was quoted as calling this unhelpful, confusing, and incredibly greedy, unquote. Uh, Quote, it's just confusing and frustrating to me why you would openly boast about bumping up prices for the biggest films. It just sounds incredibly greedy. Any consumer that hears or reads that is going to feel like they've been gouged. And right now, with everything getting more expensive with inflation, our headlines about surge pricing, what we need right now, when so many auditoriums are nearly empty, unless it's an opening weekend for a tentpole, unquote. So I agree with every single word of that. Uh-huh. I think I think movie theaters need to be freaking grateful when we go to them at this point. And to turn around and basically like gouge us with a fork because they just want to. I mean, I get it. They've had a bad time during the pandemic. This is not the response. The well, re- like a bad time for them is they make three billion instead of five. Right. It's not. Yeah, this is true. It's not like you lost six family members, you know. So, you know, this is this sucks, man. This is awful. And like I was telling Damien, you know, for me, I'm the type of person who holds a serious grudge against corporations for some reason. (laughs) And so I'm perfectly happy to like not see stuff until the surge pricing goes away. Um, Even if it 
ultimately is to my detriment just to spite movie theaters. You know, like I, I'm the person who will die on that hill. So I feel like there's got to at least be some other people out there who would do the same thing. And I think what ultimately will happen is your big opening weekends will be less big because there's going to be a certain selection of the population who's going to say, let's wait a week and see it when it's cheaper. I got to bring five kids with me. So that's a measurable difference in money. You know, I'm going to wait a week. It'll be cheaper. And then these big opening numbers that, you know, Hollywood producers and movie studios like to to brag about, they're going to go down. Well, and then you almost have to any box office earnings are going to have an asterisk because when you adjust it for other prices. You know, it's like, well, well, if you're charging fifteen dollars a ticket and everyone else is charging eight, which these are already ridiculous to begin with. Um, the prices now with Spider-Man, I could see because people hadn't gone to the movies for two years, so they were like, right. "Oh, is that how much a movie ticket costs now?" Right. Um, no, but like I, I agree a hundred percent. And the the other thing that I was reading is it makes other filmmakers think that their movies are not are are worthless. Right. You know, you're charging surge pricing for the Batman, but you're not charging it for, you know, some other movie. Does that mean my movie is garbage? You know, it's right. Right. It's a weird sort of judgment that you're levying upon one movie versus another. And I think the the other thing that it it kind of, you know, it's something along the lines where people are just starting to get comfortable. Mm hmm going back to movie theaters and to charge this amount of money for something that is, it's, it's a luxury. It's something that people like to do. It's just a slap in the face. It really, because I mean, it's like when you, you're already charging like what, $3 for a bottle of Dasani water. That is just, first of all, Dasani's gross. We're never going to get Coke to sponsor us, but I'm sorry. It's, it's not good. I don't Um, want Coke to sponsor us. No, but I mean, I can go buy a case of water for like $6 and you're charging me $3 for one bottle. Like they're already gouging us. What more do they want? And not only that, like AMC in particular was one of the sort of stock market darlings that a lot of, you know, normal people pumped money into during the pandemic, like GameStop. And their stock price during the pandemic hit $62 a share at one point, literally just from people bolstering them up and like, you know, essentially trying to help them out um, by buying stock. And now their stock is down to about 14 bucks, Hmm. you know. So if I were a person who had bought AMC stock, you know, during the pandemic to try and keep them going and help them out, and then this is how you thank me, man, I would sell that off. You know, I'd be done with them. So... I don't know, like this, your, your, your phrasing of slap in the face is just incredibly apt. And I would like to hope that they would get the message and stop, but I don't think they're going to. And I think the only thing that we can maybe hope for is that some other large studio or some other large theater um, will start to market 
no surge pricing in defiance of them. You know, mm-hmm. like somebody else, a century or whatever, will turn around and kind of like be like, well, welcome back, everyone, to the theaters. We're proud to announce no surge pricing on Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. You know, and like for me, I would go out of my way to go to a century if that were the case, you know, if they were trying to take that stand. Because I do consider it like being spit on by these theaters. So, um, And especially where... I feel like I've learned patience over this pandemic. I can wait another, what, 30 days for it to come on HBO Max? Right. Or until it's no surge. Even if it's just two weeks, 14 days and surge pricing goes away or seven days. I'm like, fine, sure, whatever. I'll go. I'll go next weekend. Who cares? You know? See, I so I love the movies, but going to the movies, I was like, if I wish I had a better screen at home. Because that's all it is. It's a better screen and better sound to go to the movies. Right. That's it. Yep. And if you want to go to a theater where the chairs are comfortable, you're paying more for that. If you want, you know, to go to a theater where you have, you know, food that can be brought to you, you're already paying more for that. So it's, yeah, it's just like, I can do this experience at home. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just another lesson in how much corporations will exploit you. Given mm-hmm. any opportunity, they will do so. All right. <laughs> Shall we move on to the big three? Yes. Okay. It's time, Alin. It's happening. It was my movie of the year last year. <laughs> it's Spider-Man No Way Home. Spider-Man. Now, here's the thing. When you saw this movie, I actually specifically asked you, was anything in it a surprise to you? And you said, unfortunately, no. Uh, you knew about all the cameos and all the surprises. Like, everything had basically been ruined. Mm-hmm. When I saw the movie, I knew nothing. I had not seen a single trailer. I had not read anything. I had somehow managed to avoid most of the internet somehow. And so I was sitting in the theater going, like, oh, my God, it's Charlie Cox. Like, I was having an absolute fit for every single cameo. And then when Andrew Garfield popped up, I basically passed out. So (laughs) I kind of lost my mind three separate times during that movie. And I felt like part of the enjoyment for me, not all of it, but at least part of the enjoyment was I was literally floored every single time something surprising happened. And then that had been taken from you. So my first question to you was, is the movie still enjoyable with no surprises? And to that, I responded, yes. Yes, it was. I still enjoyed it. I didn't know in what capacity there would be cameos. Right. Okay. So it's, um, you know, I'm not going to ruin it for for anyone because it does come out streaming in two weeks. I remember they announced a date after I went to the movies. I was like, thanks. Yeah, um, no. <laughs> <laughs> do that. I was like, look, and you were like, I'm going today. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh. but no, I didn't know the extent of the cameo, so I was pleasantly surprised. Um, I did know about from then this is from watching the trailer, so I'm not ruining it from for anyone. I did know that Doc Ock would be in it. Um, they did feature the Green Goblin in the trailer 
And around the time that the movie was coming out, Jamie Foxx did a bunch of commercials like, join me. And I was like, well, okay, so he's in this movie, too. Yeah. So, (laughs) I mean, to be honest with you, I'm just going to I'm just going to throw it out there. I'm going to find it very impossible to talk about this movie without spoiling stuff. So just (laughs) please just watch it. (laughs) Yeah, it was so it was something I knew that aspect of it. I knew about Charlie Cox being in it because mm-hmm. there was well he a, had done all this material on his status in the MCU uh-huh. post Spider-Man so it was like that was the big reveal but then after it was revealed he was coming out and talking about it and you know saying that Daredevil was coming to Disney Plus and they were going to put it on there and I was like you know this is awesome yeah so I didn't like I didn't know like how long he was going to be in the movie. I was, I was pleasantly surprised. Um, I, you know, I love Tom Holland. I think he's a great actor and I think he did. This is, this is some heavy lifting for him in this movie because he doesn't have Tony Stark in it anymore. I'm not ruining anything, but Samuel L. Jackson does not appear. Mm -hmm. The, the only, Avenger who is in it is Doctor Strange. Once mm-hmm. again, not ruining anything because he was in the trailer. So he is on his own in dealing with everything, with all the repercussions of his identity being revealed once again from the trailer. So um This is a heavy movie too. I mean, there's it a, is. there's a there's a significant death. And yes. um, I didn't I did not know about that. So I yeah, don't want to spoil either, it. Yeah, I did. Yeah. I don't want to. Um, And and the ending, which I will definitely not say, but the ending has some serious consequence to it and is also incredibly sad. There mm-hmm. is no happy ending here. And it's done very well. I know the ending was a bit contentious for people. I thought it was very brave. Other people were not super happy with it. I feel, and this is, you know, once again, just me thinking about it, this is almost his origin story because he's been this goofy kid for two movies and he's always had someone backing him up, someone helping him. Um, He had Stark Industries designing his suits and this was something fun for him to do. And you got that feeling like, oh, cool, I'm just going to go on a, 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 in a spaceship and go save the world. Cool. I'm going to jump off this. And this one, you feel there's a heaviness to him. He's growing up and he's dealing with the responsibilities that he has. Cause of course with great power comes great responsibility. I feel so, like getting snapped really changed him. Mm-hmm. Cause that was heavy too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's definitely growing up. This is definitely the most mature movie. It's got its laughs, but it's, yes. it's got a lot of heavy things going on. It's also one of those movies where it's really trying to push, which I think is like a core idea of Spider-Man that ultimately Spider-Man is a really good guy and wants to help people. He's not out there exacting vengeance or anything like that. And this whole, you know, if you wanted to talk about like the whole theme of this movie, it's kind of like love thy enemy. And this movie makes it very hard to love thy enemy. And he, this this is it. This is what he is trying his best to do. And, um, I think the movie is very successful at conveying that message without it getting to the point of, you know how sometimes like 
one of the criticisms levied against Batman is Batman should have killed the Joker because the Joker has just escaped from prison 65 times and killed Mm -hmm. 5,000 more people. And if he were dead, all those 5,000 people would be alive. Right. You kind of run up against that wall a little bit here. But I, I think the movie handles it pretty well with, okay, we're not going to murder these people and here's why. And then here's a little bit of a win to reward you for sticking it out and having that really strong ethical conviction. And I think they kind of do that pretty well. And I I think this version, Tom Holland's interpretation of Peter Parker is he's ultimately an optimist. He, he's, he's still a kid. Like you forget that he's still in high school. He's a kid. He wants to believe the best in people. And, and this movie in particular really makes him question what he's doing and why. And you want him to still have that that light, but there's a there is darkness in this film. And ultimately at the end, you know, I think the open question is is he going to still have that light moving forward after everything that he went through and the really difficult choices that he had to make? What does Spider-Man look like in the next movie or in a year? You know, like, what does that character look like after having been through this? And I don't have an answer to that question. You know, it could be that there is a darkness that wasn't there before because there's a lot of darkness in this movie. But Mm -hmm. ultimately, I think that they handled it really well. And the only other thing that I want to say about it is I cannot believe that they were able to pull it off with all of the people that they ultimately had in this movie. It's very true. I was shocked that they were able to just pull that off. And 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 not just pull it off, but pull it off so well. There's a scene, gosh, I, there's a scene I want to talk about so bad, but it's a huge spoiler. Oof. <laughs> you got to make the decision if you're going to pull the trigger or not. Oh, no, I know. All right. Oh, there is this. I'll try to dance around it. There's a scene <laughs> of redemption towards the end of this movie that is so emotional. I cried more than at the death scene. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, to me, is like indicative of how heavy this movie was and how well they managed to pull it off is because the redemption scene was something that was built up from many, many years ago. But I remembered it mm-hmm. and I knew what that redemption scene meant and I knew what it meant for the character. And it floored me. I thought it was so good. Do you know and the scene I'm talking I, about? I, I, I think I do, and okay. we'll talk about it offline. But, uh, you know, I think it's difficult. is a difficult thing to do because, and this is like the scary thing that I've been thinking about, that in our lifetime, we've seen, I think, five different Batman, uh, maybe oh, six. Oh, God, really? <laughs> yeah. And there's, there's a, you know... It's kind of something where we're cannibalizing ideas faster than we used to. Wait, wait, wait. I'm stuck on this. You got to help me because you're going to okay. help me, right? It, no, okay. It's so Patterson, um, yep. Clooney. Yep. Uh, um, Val the, the Nolan one. What yeah, was it? Val, Val Kilmer. Val Kilmer. But that, and then Nolan was. Um, uh, Christian Bale. Christian Bale. Michael Keaton. Michael. Oh, God. Right. 
He was the OG. I mean, that was yeah. the one that I mean, I obviously Adam West was the first one on television. I think that's, that's fine five. right there. Six, if you count the Lego Batman movie, which was an enjoyable little film. Um, <laughs> okay. But I mean, that's a lot of Batman. There's that's a whole army of Batman. Right. And I yeah. think I think one of the the issues with Batman, it the Batman is every time you watch it, it's a different Batman. It's a oh, different yes. formulation of Batman. I was and, just talking about this with someone where we were saying how um, the Nolan Batman were very good Bruce Wayne, but not very good Batman, Batman. Mm-hmm. And that Patterson is being touted as a better Batman, but not necessarily a good Bruce Wayne. Right. And I, I just think that's so interesting um, that like Christian Bale made for such a good Bruce Wayne. And I absolutely agree with it, but not necessarily a good Batman. And so you're right. They're all inc- And then was it George Clooney that was just the Batman nipples? Like that was the Yeah, one? his. Yeah, yeah. The, it was just nipples. Bat- That's all I it remember. Was just, yeah, it was this a bad suit with nipples. Yeah. Um, so it's an H, you know, there's been, you know, like you said, Christopher Nolan, um, Tim Burton helm the first two with michael keaton so each director that has taken over has led their own stamp to this but they're not connected and i think you know since in the past 20 years there have been three different iterations of spider-man they are not in any way connected story-wise um you know, we're just supposed to essentially wipe clean the slate. But I think it's important for moviegoers to kind of get that nod of recognition that, yeah, you've been sitting here, you've been seeing our different interpretations of it, and we're going to give you something that is enjoyable, but also is going to, you know, make you think about the different iterations. And also, like, each. it almost felt like a thank you, you know, mm-hmm. thank you for watching all of these and remembering them and supporting them. And here is like the payoff. And it's like what happened in the what if show, but times a thousand, you know? Exactly. And I will say, so uh, Sharon, my friend Sharon came with uh, came with me, her and her husband, Mike. Uh, Sharon barely watches any Marvel movies. Um, she was there for the popcorn. She enjoyed it. And she understood what was going on. Not being privy to all of the other movies. So that just shows how pervasive this is as a part of our culture. And I think it further enhances our argument from the last podcast that stuff that is so permeated into our culture should absolutely get some Oscars. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, and like I said, knowing what I knew, I still loved it. I mean, I can't wait till it's streaming in a couple weeks because oh, yeah, I'm totally watch gonna it. watch it again. Yeah, yeah, I will watch it again and mm-hmm. probably again. Yep. It they're just so well made, and everything about it, like we've been talking a lot of heaviness. There's still a lot of laughs. Oh yeah. In it, and I mean, it takes itself seriously, but it doesn't. Um, I wasn't sure how I was gonna feel about uh, Doctor Strange. Doctor Strange was very funny in this um and there's some throwback lines to previous uh marvel movies that you're Mm going to get a kick out of um but it's just something that is so well done it's it's fan it's fan service but it also has a reach beyond that where 
you know, people with a lot of knowledge or no knowledge can walk in and when the movie's done and the credits roll, say, wow, that was a good movie. Nice. Let's end it there. Yeah. All right. Very well done. Very well done. Golf clap, should golf we, clap, golf should clap. We, should we talk on what we're kind of talking about nostalgia? Should we turn yeah. to Ghostbusters? The, our, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's just start by saying I did enjoy Ghostbusters Afterlife. I mm-hmm. found it to be a very enjoyable movie. I have no major complaints about it. It doesn't do anything super new or different or unique. But the one thing that I think we really want to harp on with this movie is that it was, I think, a very uh, touching sort of loving tribute Mm -hmm. to um, Egon. Yeah, (laughs) Harold Ramis, who... Yeah, who has passed away. Yes. And honestly... Even though this movie doesn't really do anything new, and in fact, mm-hmm. it retreads a lot of old ground, mm-hmm. I was 100% totally okay with it because of that way that they did the loving tribute to Harold Ramis. Like, it it just, everything else felt like I just couldn't really criticize it because that was just so, I think, so nice, you know, for me to see that done in I think a respectful kind of way like a way that he would have been okay with you know what I mean right and I felt like and I don't know about you I felt like I was watching something that maybe Steven Spielberg could have had a hand in in the 80s sure it was it was like you had these like adorable kids who weren't that annoying who weren't annoying at all they're not glued to their cell phones there was the one character podcast um he was okay but he was okay but i mean he had his technology technological aspects but these Mm -hmm. were this felt like something that could it was a coming of age sort of in the middle of nowhere Mm -hmm. and you know no parents to be seen in true like in true 80s fashion only real adult was paul rudd and that should say something you know feel like Paul Rudd was like, no, I just want to be in a Ghostbusters movie. Don't pay me anything. (laughs) I'm fairly certain they let Paul Rudd name his own character because his character's last name was Gruberson. Yes. (laughs) Pretty sure that Paul Rudd just pulled that out of his butt. It's it's just so like he he honestly looks like he's just happy to be there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they have him playing like who's supposed to be like a seismologist or something, right? Like an actual <laughs> scientist. And I'm like, no, this it's is like the least no. believable scientist I've ever seen. <laughs> and it was just like, you know, and it was, that's right. His first name was Gary Gruberson. Like he's Gary like Gruberson. Gary yep. Gruberson. So it did. It felt like something to me where, um, you know, when he's saying, oh, you guys have never heard of the Ghostbusters and they pull up the old YouTube video and it's like, no, these kids, kids these days do not know about Ghostbusters because that was cool. And like, like, eight, I think it came out in 84 and the sequel came out in, in like 88. Right. I mean, so even this is, us, like you and I were what, less than 10 years old, you know. And, and yeah. And I mean, the, the one thing that bothered me about it and this is being very nitpicky is I know people did not like the all-female led Ghostbusters okay people were very upset about it we hear you blah 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 this movie made it seem like that never existed oh yeah no I I've never seen that female led one and I never got a 
any kind of whisper of it from this at all. So and yeah. so that's the only thing. Like it just tore down the one film that came out and was it great no but if you like like you get to see chris hemsworth being goofy which you rarely get to see like he's a receptionist who has no business being a receptionist because he's really cute but he's dumb oh this is uh, still the female ghost yeah this is a fe- yeah. yeah this is a female and i mean if you like kate mckinnon and melissa mccarthy like the it's it's a service it's a, it's a good film like for that sort of like you know what you're getting into but that's the one thing I didn't like about Ghostbusters Afterlife is we're just supposed to pretend that movie didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just kind of continues the, you know, the Ghostbusters, I guess this makes it a trilogy. Right. If or you would. It's like a it's like a trilogy slash reboot. Right. Because I mean, I they mean, could keep going, you know, they could keep going. No, they absolutely could. And I think, um, you know. For people who saw the first movie, it's like, oh, I remember that. Like, I remember, you know, the, the, the quote, dogs looked much better than they did in the oh, 80s. But I do have to say that, like, Gozer looked exactly the same. Yes. Which I thought was yes. awesome. Also, the person who did the voice of Gozer was my lady from The Expanse. Who I, I saw that. <laughs> I saw, like, it was like... Because I was like, I feel like I'm hearing because I mean, it's I'm not going to ruin it because there is a cool cameo um, for the person playing Gozer. Um, it's cool. It's yeah. fun. It's yeah. It's well and done. And, you know, it's it's you get to see. Um, you, you also get to see a lot of the original characters come back. Yes. And it, it puts a smile on your face. It's that whole thing, like we were talking about Spider-Man. It's fan service. It's saying, thank you for watching us for all these years. Thank you for still buying Ghostbusters toys. We love you. Here's a movie that is going to completely make you feel like you're nine years old again, that you can watch with your now nine-year-old. Oh, yeah. Very kid-friendly here. Right. Some, like, kind of risque, adulty kind of jokes, but nothing more than what you might get in an average Simpsons episode. So, you know. Yeah, I feel like if if Ghostbusters, the original one, came out today, it would probably be rated, like, R. It was probably, <laughs> it's probably, like, G back then. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> We got away with a lot. In the there 80s. was a lot of different things. There was a lot of cocaine back then. There was so much. I'm always saying like that. We're lucky we made it out of there alive. You know, all of us latchkey <laughs> kids. There was there's so much trouble that we could have yeah. gotten ourselves into. And then even like when we were teenagers, think of it. We were in charge of like multi million dollar stores, like locking up at night. And having oh I know <laughs> having thousands upon thousands of dollars in money like who thought that was a good idea to give a seventeen year old the keys to the kingdom. yes yeah the keys to the the code to the security systems yeah the like, code to the safe yeah yeah like oh, who boy. thought of that it's so it's just, it's just like so bizarre to think of anyway tangents yeah. aside that was my I, tangent but I think that uh, I think that you if you guys are Ghostbusters fans at all if you enjoyed the original movie go and uh, get this on Redbox it's you know it's very cheap and affordable and it's gonna it's gonna be a good movie night for you you're gonna enjoy it that's the I ultimate so. takeaway and then I just want to add this because I'm watching uh, Carrie Coon is in the Gilded Age uh, she was also in The Leftovers. Like, yeah, I don't. Damien loves do, Carrie Coon. She's really she good. Do, yeah, she can do anything she wants to, quite yeah. honestly. Like, mm-hmm. she is just like a chameleon. 
She is good in whatever she does, whether it's comedy, drama, anything. So when I saw her in this movie, I was like, oh, this is going to be good. Yeah, this is going to be good. Anything with Paul Rudd, I'm I'm instantly in. Yeah, it's like and it's like it was a weird combo just because he's so goofy. Yeah. And she's known for being so serious. They were serious. Yeah, they worked worked well together. It was great. And she's our age, which I did not realize. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, isn't Paul Rudd kind of our age, too? He's the older. He's he's in his believe it or not, I believe he turned 50 this year. (gasps) Yeah. The national treasure. You know what's crazy? Is I'm doing Romeo and Juliet in school right now. <gasps> is, he, is it the Leonardo DiCaprio one you're going to show? <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> he was adorable in that. Yeah, Paul, Paul Rudd, Rudd was Paul, in that. Rudd. He was he was a youngin and he's oh, adorable. My. That was like right around the time of Clueless. Any uh-huh. any like 90s kid will tell you that they first fell in love with him when he played Josh in Clueless. Yep. And it was like it was like an affirmation of all of our collective crushes when he ended up becoming a superhero. We're like, oh, we knew it. We knew yeah. it all along. Ant Man was in there. <laughs> he was there. And yep. I mean, yeah. So good for Paul Rudd. Yeah, for sure. All right. So we've 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 had a quite a high here. <laughs> <laughs> let's bring it down. We're let's gonna take a sharp sharp left. So let's let's start by saying that I absolutely love the original Kingsman movie. Oh, yeah. That first movie, and I always come back to the scene in the church that had Freebird playing over it. (laughs) That's one of my favorite scenes from any movie ever. Like, that scene was amazing. That movie was great. I love it. I thought it was a really well-done action film, very smart, really well done. It has been a garbage fire ever since. So the second one I absolutely hated, I absolutely hated it i don't want to talk about it so okay tell us how you really feel let's move on to the third one which was their chance for redemption not a great movie (laughs) no no and i want to say the first 30 minutes i was like okay all right i see what you're doing here like it was gonna have a different tone it was a it was a mystical like you know, historical retelling of World War One, which I think is an interesting take. You know, it's an interesting way to go about a movie. I'm like, okay. So the thing with this movie was the movie basically had three parts to it, and those three parts didn't fit together very well. Mm-hmm. You had like the beginning, you had the middle, and then you had the mountain at the end. And those those three sections like the beginning was sort of like goofy, like that whole fight in Russia with Rasputin was like, yeah. what is happening? And why would you think people would want to watch this? Like I was, I almost bailed when Rasputin was licking Ralph Fiennes thigh. I was yeah, almost it was, out. Like, <laughs> because I know you watched it in pieces and you're like, it's not that bad. I'm like, oh, she hasn't gotten no, that yeah, deep yeah. into I it. I had to watch it over <laughs> nights. Uh, yeah, but no, that... That was such a turnoff, I nearly stopped. If we hadn't talked about doing it on the pod, I probably would have stopped. I'm I'm kind of glad that I was able to get through it, though, because of the middle part. And I'm going to totally just go in a direction you're not expecting. Because oh, okay. the middle part of that movie, just for some context for those of you who haven't seen it and never will, which is fine. <laughs> the middle part of that movie is set in the trenches in World War One, And you, I want to say it's like 1917. So yeah, yeah. um the 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 main character Ralph Fiennes, right? I didn't get that wrong, did I? 
I think he says it Ray Fines. Ray Fines. Okay, so I did get it wrong. I knew I it think sounded it weird when I, I know, said be, it. Yeah, because it's kind of like, well, we would pronounce it Ralph, but okay, Ray. Whatever. Yeah, whatever you want, man. It's fine. So um, he he has a son who was an actor I had not ever seen before that I could recollect, but who did a really good job in this movie. He did. He did. But if you knew anything or remembered anything from the Kingsman, the first movie, uh, the first movie that came out, this is technically the first movie chronologically that we're right. talking about. Right, right. You kind of knew what would happen to that character. Well, here's the thing. When the character, um, he's he really wants to go fight in the war. He is really desperate. And this was a common sentiment, especially in England right. at that time. You know, right. glory and valor, et cetera. And then you actually get there and you realize, no. I made, no I've made a huge mistake. Yeah, there's no glory. There's no valor. He actually brings up a poem. Do you remember the poem? I don't remember it, but I know you. you... Oh, okay. So here's the thing. He's reading the poem. And in the movie, they, they're very unclear as to whether or not the son wrote the poem or found the poem or was given the poem. This poem is actually a real poem. It's called Dolce et Decorum Est, which is Latin. Um, and the, there, there is a full phrasing here, which is often repeat or was repeated at this time as a form of propaganda, which means in English, it is sweet and becoming to die for one's country. And the poem was written by an English soldier named Wilfred Owens, and he went and fought in the war and died. And a lot of his poetry was like found on his body, you know, like papers that he had with him. And he wrote this poem, and the poem is about the horrors of war. It's like an anti-propaganda, reality-based poem from World War I, written by a soldier who died in his mid-20s. You know, it was such a waste. Mm -hmm. And the poem is very popular. And I'm listening to them read it in this movie, and all I can think is, I know this poem. I teach this poem. In <laughs> fact, I think I'm teaching this poem next week, So, which I did. I taught it yesterday. So um, – the 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 one thing that I think this movie got really, really right was the depiction of how the trench warfare really was, how horrible it really was, and how wasteful it really was. Because mm -hmm. Owen actually got injured in the war. He was too close to a, a shell that went off, and he got sent home with shell shock. And he was out. And he had a best friend who was also a poet, and that friend of his died in the war. And this is what got Owen to go back in um, and fight was because his best friend had been killed. And guess how his best friend was killed? He was mm -hmm. shot in the head in a friendly fire incident. Oh. So someone in this movie knew something. So, so you're giving a little tip of the hat. I am. From an English teacher's perspective, the way that they did that middle part of the movie, it felt like a completely different writer and a completely different director doing a completely different movie. But that, to me, was very well done. And then the whole Russian thing in the beginning was junk. And then the whole mountain scene at the end was kind of junky, too. But it had some good action-y scenes. But that middle part was good. And, and for me, it had such a huge cast. Mm-hmm. And they didn't use oh, no. their, their cast in no. the way that you would think. Like, it's like, okay, you have all of these huge names who have been in, in movies. Like, 
uh, Gemma Atherton's a Bond girl. It's like, okay, I'm not really sure how you're using these people or how you convince them to be in the movie. But okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah nobody really had like a, a, a the only person, like I said, who stuck out to me was his son um conrad oxford the actor's name is harris dickinson i want to click on him just to see if he's been in anything else but um that was the only one who really jumped out at me as this kid is going places um everybody else kind of just phoned it in if that makes yeah. sense yeah it i mean i don't i feel like you know so matthew vaughn is the per is like the director and he created this series and i feel like he's trying to squeeze every single idea out of it that he can Mm -hmm. and don't get me wrong like Ray Fiennes he's a he's a tremendous actor he is not built for any type of comedy whether it's he doesn't have physical timing yeah he doesn't have good comedic timing he can't do physical comedy he's not a light actor he's heavy he's English patient he's been in Schindler's List like that's his wheelhouse and good for stepping out of your zone, but it just, it didn't work. The The no. movie just didn't work. It was tonally three or four different movies mm-hmm. in, in two hours. None of it worked. And like I had said to you, they're setting it up for another prequel. Oh yeah. Because it, you know, it's a retelling of world war one and at the end there's hitler yeah right so you're exactly. like oh, okay <laughs> we see where this yeah. is going yeah so i mean i don't know if such a movie will get made my inclination is to say i hope not yeah but i don't know yeah i just um oh I think- and here's the other thing that kind of ticked me off i'm not gonna lie in the first movie there was a really big thing made out of the idea that the the phrasing, the, the 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 motto of the Kingsman was um, manners maketh man, right? Oh, yes. Then you find out in this prequel that it was the bad guy who said that. Right. I'm like, what? No, wait, wait, wait. You're going to tell me that you heard your mortal enemy say that and you carried those words of wisdom all the way into the, the modern times to, to, to make that the theme of your organization? That makes zero sense. No. Yeah. No. There's a lot I, wrong with this. There's, there's a lot of things really, really wrong. It's, uh, yeah. <sighs> so, anyway, we're going to end with by, our big three by saying, please see Spider-Man and Ghostbusters. Please avoid Kingsman. The yes. Kings. The Kings apostrophe. The, the Kings. Man. man. <laughs> yes. Yeah, Which just, is also a very confusing title. It's reminding me of that Suicide Squad discussion we had a few months back. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Yeah. Mm. (laughs) All right. So let's get into our three questions to ponder. These ones are a little bit weird. Um, different kinds of things, but that's nice. It allows us to branch out. So the first one is a little bit of an interesting philosophical debate. Mm. Will James Gunn ever make movies again? And the reason why I ask this question is because James Gunn apparently was incredibly happy with making Peacemaker. And he was so happy, in fact, that HBO has already not only greenlit for him a second season of Peacemaker, but 
they're going to allow him to make another Suicide Squad spinoff show starring a different character from the Suicide Squad. So James Gunn apparently is now in HBO's pockets. And he has said that he's done with Guardians. This is it. Guardians 3 is he's done. And he said, and I quote, I'm going to be doing television now for at least a year. My mind's made up on that, unquote. So he is now kind of moving into the big budget TV segment of uh, the streaming service of HBO. And part of me feels like reading his his stuff here thinks he's really loving it. And maybe he does not want to come back Um, because there's a lot of stuff here that says how much he really enjoyed Peacemaker. He loves um, John Cena. And uh, I think he's uh, I think he's going to leave movies for a while. What do you think? Well, at first when I saw this, I thought it was because he got married recently. So I was like, is it to the woman in Peacemaker, the blonde? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, she's super hot. She's got big guns. Well, uh, I was also going to say, because he was married to Pam for the o- from The Office before. Oh, really? Yeah, they were together when, I guess you could say, she was the bigger star at the time. Mm. Um, so that's why I'm like, why? Why is he not going to? But I think the difference with HBO versus working for, you know, a film company is I don't think HBO monitors you as much as a film company you know that's a really good point he he had a lot of free i I, did you try to watch peacemaker i know you didn't like suicide squad i i know that i have to there's just so much like there's so much tv out right now i know it's crazy i i will tell you i mean it was easier for me because i did love suicide squad um i really liked peacemaker i thought that they didn't stick the landing super well but i also knew it was going into a second season so i was less like concerned with that um i thought it was really enjoyable like super enjoyable in a way that i i was actually kind of surprised how much i liked it and if you haven't seen it even if you don't end up watching the show you need to watch the opening credits (laughs) i hate to say it but you do because it is the it's like a big dance number and it is the weirdest most like it's a it, they're dancing in a way that makes you feel uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> it's the best thing ever. And it became like its own meme. And literally when Peacemaker was announced for a second season, literally the first interview questions I started to see on the Internet is, are you going to do another dance number for the opening credits of season two? And James Gunn was like, oh, heckin' yeah. So uh, I, I'm like almost more excited for the opening credits than for the freaking show at this point, because we never once skipped those credits. Like we watched them for all eight every episodes. time. <laughs> yep, okay. Every time. All right. That's a, all right. Oh, man, you got to do it. You got to do it. <laughs> but anyway, um, I think that you're right. I think it, it's interesting that some of these these uh, directors and people can can move into this the television um, area and the streaming services in particular, because for me, I'm thinking to myself, like, I kind of I kind of want AMC to die now. I hate them after this surge pricing thing. So um, I'm happy with HBO and Netflix getting, you know, James Gunn and Ryan Reynolds and all these people and just kind of Henry Cavill and just kind of holding on to them forever and, you know, doing streaming stuff at this point because I'm mad at the movie theaters right now. Well, and I think that's the the thing is like there's so many other alternatives 
to right. do things and to get things done. Like I remember going back to one of the Batman, George Clooney, like when he left ER, that was a huge deal. And people are like, his career is done because oh, you yeah. didn't go, you didn't go from television to movies. Like, how dare you? Mm-hmm. But like, there's not the same obstacles anymore. I think there's so many streaming services and they don't necessarily, they don't care if they're getting, you know, however many million of people, like a hit on a streaming service is like 3 million people. And that's enough. If you have a target audience and people are talking about it and it gets spread on social media, that's a hit. You don't have to have these huge hits so there's anymore. less stress, there's less anxiety. Yeah, that's what I think. And I mean, the other thing is like with back in the day, regular cable, you didn't, you don't really pay for it. Like, yeah, I mean, you do, but like, you don't think of paying like, oh, I'm paying $7 to NBC out of my, my cable bill and I'm paying, you know, $4 to channel four or whatever. Mm-hmm. But like here you can choose what you like and these different services and these different platforms will charge you and they're make they're making a profit off of it. And they're able to enter into these deals and they're able to offer stocks so that they're making even more money. So I think for me, I'm just imagining that HBO is like, hey, James Gunn, are you going to be done in three months? And he's like, yeah. And they're like, all right, do what you got to do. Like they're not checking the quote unquote dailies as to what he's doing. They're just saying, Hey, he's a, he's a visionary guy. Let him do what he wants and we'll see what happens. Yeah. All right, cool. So my second question is probably going to make me some enemies. Well, I was going to say not a visionary guy. No. Um, But here's the thing. We got this question in here because you and I were talking about this, like, a week or two ago and we kind of came to this realization together that we've figured something out or we collectively had an opinion that nobody else seems to have so we're gonna ask and we don't want you to hate us we want you to really think about it why doesn't Guillermo del Toro get called out for all of the stuff that he rips off and so I'll tell you the background of this. Okay. Uh, every Well, everyone knows, <laughs> the 11 people that listen to the show, mm-hmm. know that if HBO puts it on, I will watch it. So when I saw that Nightmare Alley was available on HBO, I was like, oh, I'm going to watch this. I've been hearing good things about it. And it's Guillermo del Toro's first film after The Shape of Water. And it has um, Rooney Mara. Bradley Cooper, Kate Blanchett. So you've got like a high caliber cast. Um, Ron Perlman's also in it. It's it. it I asked you how was it, and I said I did not like it because and I there said, was why <laughs> there was nothing original in the two and a half hour movie. And I said it's funny you should mention that. <laughs> this is how it started. Because I feel like that all the time when it comes to Guillermo del Toro. So I want to go back and, and basically say, like, first of all, I think some of the early stuff that del Toro has done is amazing. And in fact, I've seen his first, like, one of his first big movies. It's not even really big, but one of his first movies was The Devil's Backbone. That's I think what got it's him. One of, that's what got him on the radar. Yeah, a I lot think it's, of. It might be his second or third best movie. I'm not really sure. But because then you had Pan's Labyrinth, which was amazing. 
And from what I can tell, both of those movies are entirely original, and I don't really have any issue with either of them. Obviously, Pan's Labyrinth is a it's an adaptation of the Daedalus Ariadne story, but we're going back to ancient mythology for that one, so I don't think anyone's going to care if you rip it off. But then he did some adaptations that I also found to be pretty good, like, and but they were very clearly adaptations. So, for example, if you haven't seen his Hellboy movies, I think Hellboy 2, The Golden Army, is one of the best comic book movies there is. Like, it's so underrated and so well done. And um, I, I thought his stuff was great. And I was a pretty big fan. What started to turn me off was how he destroyed The Hobbit. And I don't want to go into this forever, but... Basically, the the long story short is that he was originally going to direct the Hobbit movies, and he bailed. Or, you know, there's probably a longer story here that was that ends with the phrase creative differences. But long story short, he bailed on these movies while after having done all of the pre-production. So when Peter Jackson came in to try and clean up his mess, it was sort of like trying to use someone else's pre-used toothbrush to get anything yeah. done. He, <laughs> that's, he, a, that's a visual. <laughs> yeah. It's the best metaphor I can come up with. It, it He had to take everything that Del Toro had done and then somehow try to cobble it together into a working movie or two or three and I don't think that the movies ever recovered. And I don't think that the Hobbit movies are all that good. Um, they're not horrible, but they're just not Lord of the Rings caliber. And I just very clearly blame Del Toro for that. He should have seen it through. Or at the very least, maybe we can throw some more blame at the studio and say, you know what? If he wasn't going to do it, just shut it down. Start from scratch. Let Jackson do it his way. Maybe you got to hire some new actors because, you know, we've run out of time and people have conflicts. But it would have been a better series instead of trying to, like, smoosh Del Toro's pre-production and Jackson's post-production together into a big mess, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's when hit my opinion of him started to sort of waver. And then here's the thing. When you make like an adaptation of something, right, and you you use some pre-existing material, there is no shame in saying that. There's no shame in like the guy who did um, Hill House and Bly Manor. He has come right out and said, you know, these shows are very lovingly based on two classics of literature, um, The Haunting of Hill House and The Turning of the Screw by Joyce. So, you know, he's come right out and said, these are the books and I have created these shows and nobody turned around and said, Oh, you know, like n- that didn't happen. Right. I mean, <laughs> we don't do that, but for some reason, Del Toro does this all the time and tries to like avoid saying that he's using stuff. And I just don't see the media calling him out. Like for example, it is so obvious that Pacific Rim is a remake of Neon Genesis Evangelion, which is a very well-known classic Japanese anime. It is so obvious. And I, I, I will I will just I will take you by your word. You're, you're gonna have to, but yeah. I just don't understand why he couldn't come out and say, I am doing a loving homage or tribute to Japanese robot stuff, Gundam even, right? No. Nobody said it. And it just bugs me 
because the exact same ha- thing happened for Crimson Peak, which is so freaking obviously an adaptation of the fall of the House of Usher. It's not like that's under copyright. It's Edgar Allan Poe. Just say it. Then it gets even worse because of the shape of water. So listen to this. I have a this this actually. Um, well, because I know that there were like lawsuits. There were lawsuits. For this. So um, listen to this. OK, here we go. There is a play called it was written in 1969 called Let Me Hear You Whisper. And this is the um, a summary. The play features an introverted female janitor who forms a bond with a dolphin while working in a military laboratory during the height of the Cold War. The janitor learns that the dolphin is to be dissected, and so she hatches a plot to kidnap it in a laundry cart and release it into a river. Sound familiar? No. I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, I'm obviously quite wrong. All right, but yeah, um, I mean, come on, it was it was a it was an amphibious beast, man. Sounds completely different to me. Oh, but I mean, look, Del Toro has done a lot of things right, and he is obviously a very very talented person. What I just don't understand is why he seems to get a pass on obviously taking stuff and then not having to give credit, like even to the point of lawsuits. Like nobody talked about how Pacific Rim was an adaptation. Nobody talked about how Crimson Peak was an adaptation. Nobody talked about how The Shape of Water was quite obviously a a stolen adaptation (laughs) um, to the point of lawsuits. But I just kind of feel like he's not, you know, it's just, it's almost like this big secret in Hollywood that he just kind of takes stuff and does what he wants. And it seems to be the same thing in Nightmare Alley, right? Well, that's that's the thing. So Nightmare Alley is based on a movie. Uh, Same name. Nightmare Alley came out in 1947. So obviously, you know, different things that you could write about, talk about, show on screen are going to be different uh, now in 2022. So that part of the movie was actually the, the most interesting part of the movie until I realized it was just a complete remake of what the 1947 movie did, because it does split the movie splits. There's a sort of a carnival tale that is going on at the, at the beginning of the movie. And um, the second half of the movie is more of a film noir. And the first half of the movie, it's very interesting but you can see the ending coming a mile away. And I mm. hate that. I hate that. I want to be surprised. I want yeah. to feel outsmarted. But there is a conversation that occurs between Bradley Cooper and Willem Dafoe. And for anyone who has seen the movie, they're going to be like, oh, yeah. But you just know what's going to happen at the end of the movie. And that's about 45 minutes in. So you still have like almost another hour and 45 minutes left. And you're like, OK, how is this going to happen? But So that particular part of the movie, and I don't remember seeing anything saying it was a remake. Like that's the thing that I was gonna ask you, and this is this is ultimately my point, is that it seems like everybody else who does remakes and adaptations has no issue with saying, This is my homage to this, this is a remake of that. 
I notice it with this with Del Toro that it seems to be this avoided kind of open secret, this elephant in a room that he does a lot of adaptations. Some of them he can't escape. You know, we know their adaptations like Hellboy. You can't escape that. The Hobbit, The Strain, Troll Hunters. All of those are very clearly adaptations. He's doing Pinocchio now. You know, like we know all of these are adaptations. You can't avoid it. But I think what ultimately bugs me, and I'm obviously very biased against him because of what happened with The Hobbit. um, But I think what ultimately bugs me is he seems to get away with claiming stuff as being original that isn't. And I don't mm-hmm. that doesn't sit well with me, I guess, is the ultimate end to this story. And, and that's true. I mean, there is no mention whatsoever that there was another film that already happened. And everything that happens in the second half of the movie is every other film noir from Sunset Boulevard to the Maltese Falcon. It is all ripped off and shamelessly so shamelessly ripped off from those better creations so that's Mm. what got me really upset is just that no i didn't like this movie and it's not that there wasn't good ideas it's just that i've seen it done before and there was no sort of recognition given to the the previous adaptation or the previous film noirs that they shamelessly took from So. so So if you are Del Toro fans out there, all we ask is that you think about it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. So last one, very, very short. Very short. This is my plea to ever. (laughs) Don't you start with me. I start because I just hear like it's my plea. (laughs) Don't you start. (laughs) It's just, I mean, you you sound so earnest. That's why I'm just like. I am earnest. I know you are an earnest person. This is my plea to everybody in Hollywood, actors, directors, who's listening right now, because mm-hmm. I know All you're out them. there. They Most know we're, po- we're, we're power players. Uh-huh. They know. We're, you're all listening. Please, for the love of God, make some adaptions, adaptations, sorry, of classic literature that I am able to show in a classroom. Because there is so, so little. I can literally show like three or four movies that have been adapted from literature. And even the ones that I can show, I often have to like fast forward or skip scenes. I actually have notes start at one hour, 23 minutes, 56 seconds, end at like I actually have notes like that in my lesson plans about movies. And I just hate it. And I'm always going to come back to um of mice and men okay which was done by gary sinise and gary sinise actually made of mice and men for teachers because it was his favorite book in high school and he directed and funded that movie lieutenant dan i know (laughs) he's a good dude he has a very successful charity foundation he does yeah being in that role really affected him and he was like i'm gonna I will sing Gary Sinise's praises all day. Um, He got his buddy John Malkovich to come in and be Lenny. And it is the best adaptation of a book that exists. And I used to teach of Mice and Men, and I would show it every year. Now I teach Romeo and Juliet. There's no great adaptation of that. What do you mean? (laughs) Didn't we watch, like, the 1950s version of it? Oh, yeah. The Zeffirelli. (laughs) Yes. It's 
fine. Oh, boy. You want to show the Romeo and Juliet from the 90s with Leonardo DiCaprio and Claire Danes, you got to fast forward through it because there's a lot of sex. There, there is, and there's a lot of swearing. There, too. Yeah, I mean, it, well, I mean, it's a dirty play, but, you know. Yeah, yeah. But there's a lot of, like, rude gestures. Like, there's one point where one of the characters, like, a male character has his shirt open and he, like, licks his own nipple. And I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> Sounds like you have a problem with how Shakespeare wrote it because I totally remember <laughs> stage direction licks nipple. Yes, I'm quite from, sure. From licketh thy own. Yeah, like, so oh. it sounds like you get a problem with him. Um, I mean, there's no, there is no uh, Frankenstein that I can show. Zero. Because they all have nudity in it. And there was a stage play that had Benedict Cumberbatch in it, and he was Victor. And I was like, oh, my God, I got to get a copy, like a filming of this stage production. I can show that. No, no, no. They add a rape. Oh. Believe me, I have read this book many, many times. There is no rape in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. (laughs) Anyway. I just think, and it's, and here's what I'm remembering. Is like when we watch um, Schindler's List in school, never thought I'd be talking about Schindler's List. We had to have our parents sign a permission form. I have to do the same thing. I have to literally put stuff in my syllabus that says I'm going to show this, you know, kind of a thing. And then hope that nobody reads it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, because, yeah, I'd be especially with something like Schindler's List like this. This happened. There's a lot of nudity in it, but that's because how that's how people were kept. Yeah. Essentially there. Um, I mean, I can show the Crucible, the Daniel Day-Lewis version of the Crucible. I oh. just have to fast forward through the first 10 minutes because there's nudity in like the first scene. And then from then on out, I can actually show the whole thing. So I have the Crucible. I have um, the Romeo and Juliet with Leonardo DiCaprio and Claire Danes. And I show pieces of it. But it's almost like more work than it's worth, you know, to like have to you know, buy the movie, get refunded, take notes, fast forward. You know, it's it's a lot of, you know, and some kids are real visual learners and they need to be able to see stuff to really grasp it. And mm-hmm. I love to be able to show stuff, you know, um, it's a nice break for me. So Hollywood, please, please make more movie adaptions of classic literature that I can actually show in the classroom. See, I thought this was going to be up about the Frederick Douglass because I was going to be like, Jamie. Dude, the Frederick use- Douglass is so <laughs> good. I am absolutely 100% showing that next year. Okay. Because and I, literally, I, there's no problem with it. It's just N-words, but we read those anyways because you can't escape it. It's history. That's what I would see. This is That's what I thought you were going to say. Like, can nope. you not put no, the no. N-word? And I'm like, well, I'm totally fine true. with that. Okay. Um, okay. That that that's a thing that we have to face and conquer and learn from. But I'm talking about like gratuitous nudity and gestures and grabbing and you know things like that in literary pieces that didn't have that in it. And there's just you know you're doing it as a Hollywood producer to 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 do what? Like I don't know, get people to go see it. I mean, and and like I said not trying to date ourselves, but a PG-13 in 1996 is very different from a PG-13. This is true, but I've talked to the students about it and they're very honest and they're very smart. And they'll say to me, Miss Silva, when we're watching movies at home and they have nudity and like gestures and things like that in it, it's totally fine. We can handle it. 
But when you're watching stuff in a classroom surrounded by your peers, it's a totally different feeling and a totally different scenario. And I completely understand this. It becomes a lot more cringy and a lot more awkward when you are with, you know, your friends or your potential crushes or people you hate or whatever it may be. That whole scene is a totally different atmosphere than just watching something at home on your iPad, you know. So I think that this is this is my appeal to Hollywood. More good movies I can show in class based on classic literature. That is what I want. Take note, Hollywood. Take yeah. note. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so that will do it for us for today. As always, please like, follow, and subscribe. You can find us on all of the social medias, including Twitter, the Facebook, and the Instagram. This week's bear is Spider Bear. Please search for Three Speech and look for Spider Bear. <laughs> spider Bear. Spider Bear. <laughs> Okay, that's it. <laughs> Doing things that a spider bear does. Exactly. <laughs> All right, everyone. We will see you next time for another exciting adventure. Until then, stay safe and take care. <laughs>